Today is Good Friday, and what's so good about this Friday? This is a Friday that signifies that Jesus died on the cross. He was crucified today. And yet, it's a public holiday in many, many Western countries. So it's odd when you think about it, um, why today is a Good Friday. And I think it's because we're not celebrating the death of Jesus, but rather we're celebrating what His death means, His grace. We're celebrating grace today. Throughout the book of Hebrews, in, um, uh, and ex especially in some of the verses that was read earlier, the author makes a point about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. The author also specifically talks about how Jesus fulfills the prophecies in the Old Testament and how he was superior to the priests, to the prophets in the Old Testament. The reading that we had earlier, it begins with the introduction of the new covenant. It, um, it talks about how the laws were written in our hearts and in our minds. And that's compared to the old covenant where the laws were written on tablets of stone. You see, the new covenant is the core to our faith, isn't it? You may know exactly what it is, but I'm willing to bet that we don't appreciate the new covenant as much as we should. But before we start talking about the new covenant, let's talk a little bit about why we even need a new covenant. You see, the old covenant was made between God and His people through Abraham and Moses. Now, these, uh, the, the old covenant were promises that depended on us obeying the laws of God. And when we don't obey to purify us in front of God, the Old Testament required that uh, priests or humans would approach God in the tent behind a curtain offering sacrifices that nobody knew whether or not God would accept them. There was no certainty, right? So you wonder what would happen to the priests if some of these sacrifices weren't accepted. But the Old Covenant also pointed to the future. It pointed to a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Let me read this for us. It says, <clears throat> The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor to, or to say to one another, Know the Lord because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. You see, the old covenant wasn't defective. It wasn't bad. It was good. But there was always going to be something better, something everlasting. And we need something everlasting because, let's face it, there's something wrong with us, right? Our imperfection is that we are sinful. We are sinful to the core, all of us. And no matter how, uh, no matter all, whatever sacrifices that we make, um, or no matter how often we do it, how often we repeat it, 
it's not going to cover our sins. But it's not just the volume of sins, but it's also the kind of sins that we have in our hearts. Most importantly, our rejection of God's rule over us. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait, wait a minute, I, I don't reject God at all. I'm here, aren't I? I'm at service on a Friday morning. I pray regularly. I tithe. I do everything that a righteous person is supposed to do. But we do reject God's rule over us whenever we are anxious, whenever we are unwilling to forgive, whenever we are prideful, immoral, whenever we are contemptuous. Think about how often we are like this. Think about someone that you simply cannot forgive. Maybe it's a spouse, a friend, a sibling. Or think about someone, people that we look down on, people of different skin color, people of different social class, different nationalities, different cultures. Think about how we view money and the hold that it has on us. This is why we need a new covenant. But this is also why the author of Hebrews emphasizes perseverance because even with the new covenant, sin lurks. The existence and the temptation of sin is still around. So what is the new covenant? And I think every, you know, everybody here, every three-year-old would know what the new covenant is, right? It's Jesus dying on the cross for us. But I think these verses goes much, much deeper. And we need to go much deeper in order to have a full understanding and appreciation and learn how to live under the new covenant. Now, let me offer to you three key aspects about the new covenant for us to, to, to take a deeper look at. They are sin, grace, and the promise. Let's start with sin. In Genesis 4-7, God tells Cain that sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. Now, just use your imagination for this. This is one of the most vivid descriptions of sin that I've ever encountered, that sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It tells me that sin never goes away and it lurks in the dark. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about sin in, 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 in ways of a murder, adultery, anger, judging, retribution, but he does that in upside-down terms. Let me tell you what that means, it, it, meaning that he's not just talking about the actual murder, but the ill thoughts that you have of someone. He's not just talking about the actual act of adultery, but the lustful, immoral thoughts that you have of, over someone. You see, it's the sin beneath the sin. That is what we're guilty of, and that is what we need to look, watch out for. Let me give you another example. You know, uh, people lie and they don't lie, right? And, um, but I think when, when, whether you lie or you don't lie, a lot of times we do it for the same reasons, out of fear and pride. For example, you might lie because you're afraid of the consequences if you don't. You might get in trouble over something, so you lie. It's fear of the consequences, of worldly consequences. Or maybe you lie because you want to preserve the image that you have. 
the self-image that you have, and that's out of pride. Conversely, if you don't lie, it also could be out of fear of consequences because you think lying is a sin, so I'm not going to lie. You have fear of the consequences. Or you don't lie because you want to preserve that self-image about you. I'm not the kind of person that lies. They're the ones who lie. I don't. And that's out of pride. So whether you lie or you don't lie, what's the difference? Both are motivated out of fear and pride. It's always the sin beneath the sin. Or let's take forgiveness. Jesus commands us to turn the other cheek, right? Now, that doesn't mean it's a command to endure pain. It's a command not to turn away from someone who is hurting you. It's a command to stay the course, to continue to pray for that person, to love that person, to support and help that person. And we can only do this if we forgive that person. How many of you might have trouble doing that, to truly forgive someone who hurt you before or is hurting you now? So you see, sin lurks in the shadow, and we have to shine a light on it so that it is revealed, so that we can repent and change. In the New Covenant, it is important to understand sin, not just the obvious sins, but the sin beneath the sin. The New Covenant is also about grace. And once we understand the nature of, of the sinful nature of us, it becomes a, a lot easier for us to appreciate the atonement given to us through the blood of Christ. How, how do we truly understand grace? How do we know we really understand it? Well, how do we account for our successes and all the good things that we have in life, whether it's in our children, our family, our career, our wealth, our health? Do we have a feeling that we earned it or we deserved it? But we haven't really earned anything, have we? All of it is through God's grace. So you see, grace should humble you and it should take away your pride and it should make you more dependent on God. Ernest Gordon was a Scottish POW in World War II. He wrote the book Miracle on the River Kwai, which tells the true story of his experiences at the hands of Japanese um, as he and his fellow soldiers were forced to work on the Burma Siam uh, Railway. Let me share with you an excerpt from his book. At the end of each day, the tools were collected from the work party. On one occasion, a Japanese guard shouted that a shovel was missing and demanded to know which man had taken it. He began to rant and rave, working himself up into a paranoid fury and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward. No one moved. All die, all die, he shrieked, cocking and aiming his rifle at the prisoners. At that moment, one man stepped forward. The guard clubbed him to death and with, with his rifle and while he stood silently to attention. When they returned to the camp, the tools were counted again, and no shovel was missing. Obviously, this changed the men in that unit, and Gordon went on 
to describe how this had changed the men. Let me read this to you, for you. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between forces that made for life and those made for death. Selfish hatred, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, laziness, and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith were the essence of life. These were gifts of God to men. There was still hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life in fellowship. You know, if, if that one soldier, that one soldier he gave his life for the rest were able to change the lives of these men forever, if one man can change the lives of so many other men, can you imagine how much more should would our lives or should our lives be changed knowing that God died for us? Throughout human history and throughout our own individual, personal history, we've done just about everything possible to deserve condemnation. Friends, it's an open and shut case, right? And God did bring down such condemnation. He just didn't bring it down on us. He brought it down on Jesus. And Jesus took it willfully. And some of you might then say, well, but that's Jesus. Of course, he can take it willfully. But let's remember, Jesus was flesh and bone, just like us. He felt pain and sorrow and fear, just like us. He cried out in agony, asking for the cup to pass him. But he didn't walk away, or, or he didn't walk to the cross thinking that it was just another, you know, walk in the park. He knew what it meant. He knew what it meant to take on the full condemnation of God and to be separated from God. But he still went for two reasons. Because of his, of his obedience to God's will and because of his sacrificial love for us. I grew up um, in a Catholic family, and I grew up as a Catholic, and I always looked at the cross um, sort of like an idol, if you will, something you look at to pray to for miracles. But the cross is much more, isn't it? It's so much more. It's a symbol of suffering and death that Jesus died the death that we should have died. But it's also a symbol of hope and life that Jesus lived a life that we should have lived. So when we talk about grace, we must talk about it in terms of the severity of our sins and the cost of our redemption. Otherwise, we won't have a true appreciation of grace until we know the cost. Now, at this point, you might think, okay, this is sounding like a one big guilt trip. We're guilting ourselves into believing. And if this is how you see grace, then, friends, you don't really understand it. God is not asking us to earn grace. He knows we're not perfect. He wants us to claim this grace so that we can be free from sin, so that sin no longer holds us as hostage. 
so that we don't obey out of guilt, but we obey out of our love for the gospel. A complete understanding of the new covenant also means that we have to understand the promise, the promise of the new covenant. In verse 23 of the passage we read earlier in, in Hebrews, um, it says, For he who promised is faithful. Let me repeat these six words. For he who promised is faithful. These six words can easily get lost in the chapter and everything that we talk about, but they are critical in our belief in the new covenant. You see, this is a promise from God. This new covenant is a promise from God. Think about a promise from someone you really, you think is really important, right? Think about a promise in that way. Recently, I was... um, I was made redundant. I was essentially forced to retire much earlier than I expected and I hoped for. And it's the first time it's happened to me, so it really knocked me for a loop. It affected me in many different levels, um, you know, confidence, identity, all sorts of things. But I found assurance from God that this was His plan for me. I may not understand it, but it's His plan. But I also found assurance from my wife, from from Maggie, my wife. Because I know that she's always going to be there for me. And you've heard this term before from people that you know, I'll be there for you, right? But when that comes from someone as important to you as your spouse, it has that extra bit of assurance, doesn't it? It's It's not from someone randomly on the street or someone you don't know very well, but someone who's your partner who says, I will be there for you, it means a lot more. So you see, the one who's making the promise does matter. And the new covenant is a promise from God. No being higher, no being more powerful, none other than our own creator, no being who loves you more. That's who the promise is from. I mentioned earlier that the author of Hebrews emphasizes perseverance in, his, in some of the verses that he, he, he wrote, and that's because none of this is easy. Our society has become more and more individualistic, entitlement-driven. Um, let's face it, the world is not in good shape. Many young adults are saying that they don't want to have children because they believe that bringing another child into this world is is criminal. So it's really easy to give up. It's real easy to just live for the moment, live for ourselves. And that's why the author in verses 19 to 25 of Hebrews um, talks about, let me read it to you. Uh, It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And we should spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to not give up meeting together, but encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. This, these verses, that's a description of fellowship and church. This, what we're doing right now, what we're going to do later downstairs, what we do at our homes and links, what we do in our ministries, what we do in prayer meetings, 
That is what the author is talking about. That is how we can persevere and hold on to the hope that we profess. The hope of seeing God's kingdom with our own very eyes is asking us to do church the right way. And that means that, you know, we, we have to share our sins with one another. How many of us do that? How many of us share our fears and temptations with one another? How many of us, how many of us give one another the permission, the invitation to rebuke us, to point us, to point out our sins? We must do church properly so that as a family, as a community, we, we're bind, we bind together under the fellowship of, of the cross so that we can remind each other our sinful nature, but also remind each other of the amazing grace of Jesus and the hope of the new kingdom of the new earth. So we're celebrating Good Friday. We're celebrating Jesus' death because of what it represents, His grace. And um, Tim Keller, I, I, I listen to quite often, um, has a really great illustration on this. And let me share this with you. Imagine if you were walking with your friend and, and your friend turns to you and says, uh, let me show you how much I love you. And then he jumps in front of a bus and gets hit by the bus and dies. Now, would you say, wow, he really loves me a lot? Would you be moved? No, you'd be scared. You think that was crazy. It was nuts, right? But now imagine if you're crossing the street and you're about to get hit by a speeding bus, you don't know it. And your friend, knowing and seeing that bus coming out at you, at the cost of his life, pushes you aside and gets hit by the bus instead. How would you feel then? Your life will change, right? You will change. Surely you'll become less selfish. Love will have a deeper meaning. Sacrifice will have a deeper meaning. When you truly understand what Jesus did, how can, we, how can you not be changed? How can we not be changed? Don't you see? Jesus died to save you. That's the only way you could be saved. There was no other way. So Good Friday is all about Jesus and is about all that he did for us. But I think Good Friday will still become just another ritual or another holiday if we don't celebrate Good Friday and Easter by sharing with one another our sinful nature, reminding each other about the grace and the promise given to us at the cost of of Jesus' life. We do church not because we have to in order to, to be saved, but we do church because we have been saved, and we want to do it right because we want to honor Jesus and glorify Him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord, we thank you we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you've given us today to celebrate not just his death on the cross, but to celebrate his grace, to celebrate that the beginning of that reunion that we have with you. 
And we pray, Lord, that you will illuminate our hearts and our minds, that the laws that you have written in our hearts and minds will, 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 will light up and will be a light that will guide us to do church properly, to love one another, to forgive one another, to embrace each other as one body, one family, together under the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.